Another rebound in a crowd by the Brock Ness Monster. Ooh, that would be Pedro. Ooh. Jim Bob Foley, holy moly. How about the Tasmanian Slovenian with the stop, drop, and pop? Tiffany Hop with the King's Herald Barbershop. You're listening to the King's Herald Show a bi-weekly NBA podcast that covers all the ups and downs, ins and outs of your one and only Sacramento Kings. As always, I'm your host, Will Griffith, and with me today are my partners in Futility and a very special guest as well. Uh, first up, writer for the Kings Herald and podcast with himself, Tony Zipteris. Tony, happy All-Star break. Happy All-Star break, Will. Good morning. Uh, excited to talk about um, not necessarily the basketball, but other Kings organizational things today on the show. Absolutely. Next up, he's a man who's worn a million different hats in his decade plus and covering the Kings. He's uh, he's the Kings insider for NBC Sports California and Bay Area. James Ham. James, thanks for coming on today. Hey, no problem, guys. Uh, I kind of miss podcasting. So and it looks like uh, is it just me or does Tony look like he's ascending from heaven? I mean, (laughs) very bright here today. (laughs) (laughs) We're talking about basketball hell, but yes, Tony is currently in a brightly lit room in heaven. Um, Last but not least, he's a former Sacramento Kings head coach, GM and color analyst, the general manager of a WNBA champion and Indiana basketball hall of famer and the true pride of French Lick himself, Jerry Reynolds. Jerry, as always, it is an absolute pleasure to have you here today. Well, thanks, guys. And I, I really looking at Tony. I was thinking I was having a near death experience. You know, I was <laughs> starting to go go through the, the tunnel, and and I thought if Tony's who I see when I get there, it's not a good sign. <laughs> I should get a, a curtain sponsorship or something. <laughs> I'll drag you back, Jerry. I'll drag you back. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I need to come back. Bring me back. Come to us, Jerry. Come to us. <laughs> Uh, so last time we spoke, um, the Kings were in the middle of a five-game losing streak. Um, as we all uh, well know, that that extended a little bit further uh, since uh, since these two weeks have passed. The Kings have gone two and six, uh, further dropping down the uh, Western Conference standings. But uh, we wanted to kind of sideswipe that a little bit to uh, to get right to the point today. We have James Hammond, who uh, who just uh, just today published an article about uh, Luke Walton's job security um, with the Sacramento Kings. Um, despite a shaky first half of the season. So, James, why don't you go ahead and uh, break down a little bit for us uh, what you know, what you've heard, anything you can share with us on that. Yeah, I mean, I think we all know that Luke Walton's job has been kind of on the rocks over the last couple of weeks. I mean, you don't just lose nine in a row and what was it, 10 out of 11? I don't know, what is it at this point? It's 11 out of what, 13? Um, and, and just walk around confident in, in who and what you are as a head coach. Um, but, uh, I think kind of reached a fever pitch this week and with, uh, the all-star break upon us, I think a lot of people thought this would be an opportunity for the Kings to kind of step away and, and do something different. Um, you know, maybe turn to Alvin Gentry and let him finish out the season. Um, and as of right now, I just don't think that's the case. Uh, everything I'm hearing from inside is that Luke Walton is going to get a little bit longer, uh, to, to see what he can do. And, you know, I think we'll talk about this later in the show, but, one of the things for me, like my, when I'm covering a head coach, um, I try to stay out of the weeds as much as possible when it comes to these guys, because I see what they do every day. I see how much work they put into it, how difficult their job is. Uh, I also am realistic about the talent on the team um, and what he has at his disposal and what he doesn't have. Um, and to be honest with you, uh, Luke Walton has been the head coach of the Sacramento Kings through probably the most difficult time in professional sports history. 
and we're talking about uh, a global pandemic. Uh, but even if you go back to the start, I mean, his owner decided to take the team to India for a trip and wiped his team out heading into the last season. Uh, Marvin Bagley broke his thumb in the first game of the season. Uh, De'Aaron Fox rolled his ankle before the 10th game of the season and missed 17 games. Like uh, Dave Yeager did amazing things a year before, but he also had no injuries. And so I, you can't expect Luke to pick up where he left off. But what I did like to see is that by the end of last season, Walton had really started to turn this thing around. He'd made a really difficult decision in switching out Buddy Hield for Bogdan Bogdanovich in the starting lineup. Um, and, you know, if it weren't for the, uh, the global pandemic that he's now had to coach through, um, I, I think that Luke Walton, Vlade Divac, this team would look uh, incredibly different this year. Um, I think Bogdan Bogdanovich would have been back. I think Ken Bazemore would have been back. I think Alex Lynn might've been back. Uh, and this team would have been deeper and better than they are right now, but a global pandemic hit. And so I, I just really find it hard to blame Luke for all that's happening when he has uh, at this point, what four players on the roster that are either undrafted or second round picks in the last two drafts on his main 15 man roster. And then he has Norvell Pell, uh, who is again, a, an undrafted guy who didn't get into the league till 28. So five guys, uh, one of the other 10 guys on his main roster is Javari Parker, who this team is just not going to play. Um, so like, what do you expect? What do you expect? I mean, it, this is, uh, I think Jerry will understand this. This is a, a one-legged ass kick, kick in contest. Uh, and he just doesn't have the horses to compete. Um, but he also strangely enough has the second best win percentage of any coach in Sacramento Kings history outside of Rick Cattleman. Uh, so, I mean, I, I, I just, you have to show patience when a guy loses the locker room, that's when he's got to go. I've seen it many times. I've covered enough head coaches that there have been plenty of guys who lose the locker room. That's for me when it's time to go. And as of right now, I just don't think Luke has lost the locker room. Jerry, talk to us for a second about your opinions on this, um, uh, especially on Luke Walton standing as, as, a, as a coach and, and where you see it as a former coach yourself. And uh, 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 especially about uh, James talking about losing the locker room and having been a coach. Talk to us a little bit about that and when you think it is time to go as a coach. Well, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I certainly agree with James on that. I mean, if you've lost the locker room, and I mean, that's uh, a lot of times th that's difficult to tell. I mean, usually outsiders seem to be a lot more uh, quick to point that out when it, sometimes it hasn't happened, you know, I mean, uh, so, but, but if you've lost your locker room and I mean, that means confidence of the players to play for you not playing hard for you, things like that, you've got to make a, a change uh, because it's not likely to turn around ever. Uh, so, you know, in that case, and, and I don't think there's an indication that that's happened uh, with Luke, uh, you know, having, said all that i mean i, I think uh, you know when you look at it i mean to me the the team's record uh is probably about what we thought it'd be to be honest with you when the year started uh you know that uh okay uh, they weren't as good as we hoped they'd be when they had the, the winning stretch uh, i don't think they're as terrible as they looked during that losing stretch uh, but the record is kind of probably pretty close to who they are and as james pointed out and and i agree with i mean the roster is just not deep enough or good enough to win consistently. And, and that's, and I guess I'd take another step forward is what, what would be the point of uh, a changing coaches now 
because you'd be going to an interim situation. And, and I, I think with the short season, short half season left, uh, I just don't think it makes any sense at all. And uh, it's not, I understand the two, the two teams that switch coaches already year, you know, with Ryan Saunders in, in Minnesota, that was a disaster. You know, I mean, uh, not that they were a good team, but they shouldn't be as terrible as they are. And they certainly had injuries. And I, I don't think you ever, the injury stuff is, is always probably each home team exaggerates theirs compared to the everybody else. You know, it's always our guys are hurt. Well, the other guys are hurt too. So, so I, I don't play that game at all. Uh, and the pandemic and the pandemic is for everybody. Everybody's been through that uh, to various degrees. Uh, so you can't play that game. It's just to my mind, uh, you know, uh, what were your ex expectations? And my mind is most people's expectations are 14 and 22 is about where they thought, you know, and I know a lot of people were expecting the team to be even worse than this. So why would you to feel like all of a sudden we got to go get rid of Luke, move up a interim coach who, in, in all honesty, as much as I like Alvin personally, I mean, he's had five head jobs and been fired five times. What, what, why is that a good idea? You know, James, just just because uh, I know you mentioned this in the article, uh, you mentioned that uh, Monty McNair was hired with the understanding that at minimum, Walton would have uh, the ability to coach out the season. With these recent rumors that, uh, that now all of a sudden that had changed for uh, a week or so or that it was kind of heading the other direction, is this a situation where Kings fans need to worry about, or maybe not worry about, but need to understand that this is just as much an ownership or other people in the front office pushing that other than Monty McNair? Um, yeah, I mean, I think you've always got to be concerned of that, about that, right? Uh, until we have a transaction with a head coach or with a free agent that you never hear, hear the name Vivek Ranadive involved, then you're always going to have question marks about who and where and, and all that stuff. Um, for me, you know, again, like I hear things all day long, um, the, the Walton stuff, the patience, the, all, all that's like, I think a lot of it is coming from outside the room, uh, outside the room, meaning Luke Walton has a daily conversation with Monty McNair. They are on the same page about what this team needs, who is going to play major minutes for this team, where this team is heading. And, uh, I, I think sometimes the outside forgets that, that there's a process here and, you know, they get impatient. And if, you know, I owned a basketball team, I would be impatient too. Like it, we talk about a 14 year playoff drought. We're going to, we're going to hit 15 this year, most likely. And of that, I, what is it? Seven years are on Vivek at least. So we can't talk about the, the Maloofs being the problem anymore. Um, you know, my first couple of years covering this team, the biggest takeaway for me was that, uh, they ran the lowest payroll in the league the first two years, and it wasn't even close. I mean, they had to trade for Marquise Daniels one year who had injured his neck and was out. And I don't think I'm not even sure if he ever played again. They had to trade for him just to get to the floor, the, the salary cap floor. And I, I think that might be the biggest disappointment for me is that Vivek has spent money. I mean, he's built a beautiful arena. He He's. I mean, I'm not sure he spent a lot of money on that giant pookie looking thing out front that looks like a giant gummy bear. Uh, but, you know, he has put money out and not just like in the amenities, but in 
in the franchises with putting money into players, paying big money. And to me, it just feels like they just can't get it right. And they just can't get out of the way and let basketball happen. And for me, that's the biggest thing. Like if Monty is making this decision, that's fine. And like, I think the other thing I'll point out too, is that Luke and Monty are, are relatively same age. Uh, they both have young kids. They're both kind of along the same path. So when you say Monty wants his guy, uh, I'm not sure that Monty has his guy out there uh, unless it's Mike D'Antoni at like 68 years old. You're going to bring him in and try to run something crazy next season. Um, so like at, at what point do you just have to sit back and say, maybe these two can just like the players, if you leave them together long enough, maybe they can come up with something. And I'm not saying give Walton like the longest leash of all time. Uh, but I think we also have to understand, you know, what this season looks like. The fact that this team, even with Dante DiVincenzo, is probably five games better. It's just the the complete lack of depth. Uh, the Kings haven't had one major injury, but they've got these little ticky-tack things that take away one player from a seven- or eight-man rotation. And you can't survive when that's your rotation and when that's your depth. And so I, I just try to look at the whole the whole picture. And, and to your question, I really do hope that in the end, Monty gets to make the decision. I think the fact that Luke is still the head coach is actually a good thing for, uh, for the dynamics behind the scenes, because I think Monty was still on board with Luke. And as of right now, uh, it looks like he may have been uh, sort of the calming voice in the room. It sounds to me that this is, I mean, this has basically been the design. Uh, Tim Maxwell wrote about this. You've talked about this as well, that Monty McNair intentionally didn't go out there and sign any free agent for longer than a single season. He's kind of, he's kind of put it, put this, you know, uh, the shortage of good players behind the starters out there on purpose as a way of uh, either quietly, uh, what did we call it? Proactive rebuilding, uh, Jerry, right? Uh, we, 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 uh, we, we see that this is designed this way almost. And it, it feels uh, like Luke Walton is still coaching because there is an understanding between them that this is what's happening this season. Obviously Luke is coaching every day for his, his, his career. You know, there is no guarantees past tomorrow for coaches in the NBA. And um, he is, you know, doing the best he can uh, for Luke Walton um, with what he has. Uh, the other thing of this on the other side, though, I, I, I do like that today we've got two insiders. We've got guys that have been in the locker room, both as a GM and a coach, and James, who's in the locker room uh, as a reporter, and then two guys that are kind of on the outside. I'm, I, you know, I've never been in a locker room. Tony's barely been to California in his life. True. And so he, Tony's as outsider as you can be. <laughs> and so as, as to uh, more fans of this thing, we also look at it and say, this is the worst defense in NBA history. And uh, as the shortage of, of talented players behind the starters goes, how much, uh, and I'll ask Tony this only because I haven't gotten him in yet. Tony, how much do you blame the players versus the coaches for something like owning the worst defense in NBA history? I think it's, I mean, you can't blame, you can't put full blame on either party in this case. And I do agree that while I may have in some ways, agreed with those who would want Luke Walton fired during the, the long end of the losing streak and, and wondering how long can this last, how many games do you have to lose before something changes? Um, they obviously, you know, took some pressure off with two wins over Detroit and the Lakers. But I do think there is from that fan perspective, there is a little bit of a, a sense of inevitability with Luke Walton's 
uh, with the end of Luke Walton's run here because of, you know, the fact that Monty McNair didn't hire him. But I think James makes a good point. And I think reading Sam Amick and Jason Jones in The Athletic makes a good point in that um, it does sound like Luke Walton is actually sort of doing exactly what Monty McNair asked of him. So I think the, the more interesting question that I'd like to ask James and Jerry do you think this relationship extends beyond this season? Because I think there, there was, like we have talked about, this pressure on Walt and this speculation that maybe his job here was coming to an end. Um, but then you read insider reports, you know, not outsiders from Will and myself, where actually it seems like there is some people in the organization that are happy with the job Walton has done. They're sympathetic to the roster he's had to coach. And now I'm swinging in the totally other direction in some ways reading this stuff wondering if Walton is actually going to be here beyond the end of the year. Uh, James, do you have any read on that or any insight on, on if Luke Walton's job is so safe that you think he gets another whole run at this next season? Well, I mean, there's a couple of interesting stats that, that Amick and Jason threw in there uh, in that, that report. And I'll tell you like the Kings, he, he quoted the Kings have lost a hundred million dollars on, on the whole downtown area there um, since the pandemic started. I'll tell you this. I heard that figure uh, three or four months into the pandemic. So that number is considerably higher, probably more like three or 400 million at this point. Um, They, you know, this franchise, every franchise is leaking. I I mean, there, there's nothing you can do. It's, it's, it's not just basketball. It's the, you know, it's not just not having fans in the building. It's no concerts, no Disney on ice, no, you know, blue man group or, or dudes hanging from the ceiling doing Cirque du Soleil. It's just a brutal situation for those guys. And you go downtown, the Kings own a huge amount of the business space in the Doco. So it's, they own the Sawyer, which is empty. They own, uh, you know, a lot of the restaurants and all that stuff along there. Um, and the fact that there's still businesses there tells me that the Kings are being sympathetic and letting small business owners have a very long leash on, on their restaurants and stuff, because it's going to be really hard to replace those things. So I think when you look at all of these things, um, look, he's owed $11.5 million, which is a huge amount of money. And the reason why I believe is because they backloaded his deal because the Kings were already paying Jaeger uh that for that last season and so they wanted to backload his deal for a little bit because they thought he was a long-term answer for this team and and i'm not sure that he's not like i I have no idea like again i I would like to see luke walton in a regular situation with a regular roster without all this crazy uh stuff on the outside that's going on i don't think i'm going to ever see that um but i guess this is what I'll, i'll end with uh he he's got 36 games here right the Kings have, I think it's the 26th most difficult schedule in the league. There is a chance that this team actually does win games in the second half of the season. There's a chance that they fight to get into the play-in game, which is totally bizarre this year. Uh, and I think that's, I tried to explain that, but like nine plays 10 and whoever wins, uh, there's a game eight plays seven and whoever wins that goes and plays the winner of the nine versus 10. And then, the nine versus 10 has to win two games to get in. I mean, it's crazy, but the Kings are just a couple of games out of the 10th spot and there are teams that are more than willing to fade. And so you're kind of caught in the middle. Jerry saw this so many times before that the worst thing you can do in an NBA draft really is be like number seven, right? 
and it you can just name them but like lionel simmons will williams uh you know uh, bobby hurley uh jason jason williams like the seven seed even brian grant i think was eight nick stauskas was eight ben mclemore was seven so my point is that this is a, a really really good draft and and people should say you know what i don't really care what happens in the second half of the season let's just support the team watch what happens and then at the end of the day, if Luke Walton does something miraculous and we get into the playoffs and we all celebrate Luke Walton, uh, if he doesn't, then we all know what the inevitable is coming and you're going to potentially get a top five pick in uh, one of the better drafts in, in 20 years. And so that's kind of where I'm at. Jerry, um, only because only because James mentioned that too. Would you would you speak on uh, the... Oh, I don't want to get too much into trade rumors just yet, but could you speak on... on as a, as now as the general manager, how you would approach the second half of the season? Is this something where you can be totally Zen and say, okay, we're just going to let, you know, we're just going to let the cards fall where they may. Or if you had an opportunity one way or another, would you try to push this team towards a play-in game or just go, okay, you know, now I, I see the writing on the wall. It's time to, well, it's time to ship some of these guys out and, and try to collect a, a, a high talented asset in the top five. I, I, I'm not sure one thing has to do with the other. I, I think anytime uh, you can, if if you can improve your team via trade, whether short term or long term, you do it. Uh, you know, you you can't pick and choose. It's like uh, okay, so you got a chance. If in fact you got a chance to trade a, a player today, uh, that's a good player for somebody that you think will not be better maybe next year, but the what you get from it will make you better in the long term, well, that's a good deal. You do it. Uh, or even short term, player A for player B, and you think player B is better. Well, you, you've got to do that. Uh, you're thinking of the franchise. Now, having said all that, uh, the likelihood of any of that is very slim. Uh, your, your hand, you, you're, you know, you've got your hand. Uh, you're, as James said, this team probably could make uh, a play-in situation. Uh, as it is, it's very possible. Uh, having of course, I, my, my thinking is that the Kings have been the luckiest team in the league so far due to the pandemic and injuries. They've had absolutely, you know, so if you want to knock on wood, fine. But, but I mean, don't, don't count on that continuing the entire year. Uh, so, so, you know, when they, people talk about hard schedule, easy schedule, yeah, well, that, ch- that can change overnight with, a, with an injury or a bad COVID test or two. Uh, and so, so th- to me, that doesn't mean deadly. Uh, but I, I think they're in a case where you, you know, go go play your games, play them as best you can with what you got. And if if there are deals there that you think you can make that will help you uh, in the future, not well, I think future has to come first. Now, you know, I'm kind kind of come to your way of thinking. I don't think uh, you're likely to make a deal that's going to make a difference this year. I mean, you'd have to, I mean, that that's, yeah. the other teams aren't idiots. I, I read some of the trade proposals, you know, yeah, we'll take, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll give you three or four of our guys. We don't really want off a losing team and we, we'll get one of your better players off a winning team. Oh yeah. That, that should work. Yeah. I think I, I don't imagine, I imagine lining up to do that. Uh, so, so my mind is, Hey, I, I think that this is a half year situation. I think it's a half year for the team. I think it's a, going to be a test for Monty uh, because he's got to, you know, provide some leadership one way or another. Uh, and then I think with uh, Luke at the end of the year, they'll reevaluate that situation. And uh, 
to a bigger point, and I thought James made it. I'm a pretty good friend with a couple of minority owners, and I know this this franchise is bleeding money, just far excess of what most fans understand, and uh, and that's why I think uh, some of the the idea of tanking for five years and getting into the process is uh, you, you, you'll be cheering for the King somewhere else, probably in about four or five years, if that would continue, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's the realities. Uh, you know, at some point this team is in a, sh- in a short term has got to become competitive, not long-term. James, is there a, from anything that you're hearing, just so that we can talk about it a little bit, is there anything that you're hearing that you feel like is, uh, might relieve these owners of some of their money in terms of some of our vets, you know, like a Buddy Heel trade? Is there any one that you feel is more likely to be traded or another? Not, not that we would trade Buddy Heald in order to get cap relief, in order to keep Vivek from having to pay that big contract, but is there anything that you're hearing that is more or less likely than others? Um, you know what, like, look, you just, I'll catch on something that you just said there. Like, it's not about Vivek play, paying uh, Buddy Heald. It's about Monty McNair and what he can do with that money. That's that's the biggest issue for me. It's that Monty accepted a job with a roster and a coach that were kind of locked in. And he decided not to bring back Bodanovich because if he did, then he's basically basically rolling it back with with Vlade Divac's roster and no guy wants to come in and be the guy who won with somebody else's team. Uh, if he did, they'd probably be the six seed right now in, in the postseason, uh, and with a chance, you know, in this, in this mark, in this day and age of what's happening to be a little bit higher. Um, so when it comes to like, who's going to be on the block and who's not, to be honest with you, the only guys that aren't on the block, in my opinion, are De'Aaron Fox and Tyrese Halliburton outside of that all bets are off completely. Uh, if Rashawn Holmes makes it through the trade deadline, I do believe that the Kings will try to resign him this summer. Uh, so that's one thing. Um, but uh, I think the best thing that happened for the Sacramento Kings is that Tyrese Halliburton uh, got dinged up and missed four games because Buddy Heald has had the worst case of looking over his shoulder that I've ever seen. And he is absolutely worried that Tyrese Halliburton is coming for him and it has caused him to become just unplayable most of the time. And it, the sad thing is it's kind of hidden the fact that buddy is in great shape. He's worked so hard. Uh, he can play small forward now where he couldn't before because he's absolutely ripped. Um, he has improved dramatically as a defensive player. He has games where he forgets how to, how to, you know, how to stop a guy from going back door on him. Uh, but from where he was to where he is now, I think we're just completely missing the fact that he has taken huge steps. He's taken huge steps as a passer. He's turning the ball over less. So for me, the biggest thing that happened for the Sacramento Kings is that Halliburton went down for four games. Buddy Heald went out there and looked like Buddy Heald, like some sort of miracle sprinkled over the top of Buddy Heald. And I just think it's that he's not looking, even though he's playing his career high, like almost 35 minutes a game he's still looking over his shoulder, wondering when it's going to happen. And it's caused him to really struggle this year, especially with the shooting. And all of a sudden we see him put up what 80 points in three games, but it's not just that, you know, the one game he had 29 points, six rebounds, six assists and zero turnovers. Like that's spectacular. If that's a buddy healed, you've got the whole second half of the season. This team will actually win games. If you keep them intact and you add a few pieces. Um, so I guess, 
if like the answer for me is that Buddy Hield is the guy that you would want to trade just because you have a player who's ready to step in because you own three more years at a huge amount of money. Um, and that he's kind of gone skittish on you. Um, I, for my, I wouldn't trade Harrison Barnes. I, I, I mean, I get it. Um, but what are you going to get for Harrison Barnes? I, I mean, is you, you might get Aaron Neesmith and a giant trade exception and like the 18th pick in the draft for Harrison Barnes from the Boston Celtics. And for some people they're like, Oh, that's fine. But I just like name five players that the Kings have had in the last 15 years that give you league average production for 35 minutes a game. They don't have any of like we're talking maybe Rudy Gay, but league average. So like 15, 16 PER, like you can get guys to do that for, for 25 minutes a game or for 18 minutes a game. But a guy who can give you that for 35, who's just solid, who can play multiple positions, the Kings haven't had it. So if you're going to trade him away and expect to suck, expect to suck for a long time, because without a veteran like that, and how do the Kings replace a veteran like that? I don't know. They've never done it before. So how are they going to go out and find someone as good as Harrison Barnes? And he's a guy that can play for another three, four years, five years at the same exact level because of the way he takes care of his body. Um, so, so that's like, I, I wouldn't trade Harrison. Maybe I've dragged this out way too long. Um, especially all the community stuff that Harrison does as well. But um, like, I think Nemanja Bielitsa is on the block. Uh, Jabari Parker's on the block. Uh, Hassan Whiteside's on the block. Corey Joseph's on the block. Like name that player. They're on the block. Marvin Bagley. They're going to listen on Marvin Bagley and, and I think rightfully so, uh, you know, you just, you have to get value though. You can't keep losing players for nothing, which is player. This franchise has done so many times. You know, James, I'm curious because you made that point. Um, uh, I think you made that same point in a mailbag that you and I wrote together. And, um, and we, we've had this argument, me, me and Kevin Fippen have gone back and forth on this on Twitter at three o'clock in the morning, sometimes um, eating but, Skittles um, and, and, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Just just twitching <laughs> out, talking about Harrison Barnes until all early hours of the morning. But uh, I also, and this isn't necessarily a pushback, but also like they they there was a Harrison Barnes to go out and get, and what they got him for was uh, was uh, Justin Jackson and 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 a little bit of nothing. And and not saying that there are a million Harrison Barnes out there, but it seems to me that eventually Rudy Gay got replaced by a Harrison Barnes. It took a couple of years to do it. And and uh, they got that replacement for almost nothing. I don't want to say it discounts your point at all, but it, it is, is there not always going to be somebody that's unhappy on, on their franchise or somebody that's underperforming somewhere that the Kings, if they have an intelligent GM, could go out and get? Well, I mean, in theory, but again, you just have to look around and see how many times that's happened. You know, again, I, the Harrison Barnes career path is almost identical to, to, uh, to Rudy Gase. I mean, he, he got traded with, I think one year and, a it was a player option at 19 million. He accepted the player option and then he signed an extension, uh, which is sort of what happened with Barnes, except for he turned down the, the one year player option and then signed an extension. Um, and I get that you can find better players than Harrison Barnes, but this team is not going to be able to bring a better player via free agency. in. I guarantee it. They've never done it. I mean, their best free agent signing still ever is Vladi Divac. And their second best one is, 
I don't know, maybe Bobby Jackson. It might be Rashawn Holmes. Brad we're Miller. Talking, yeah, uh, but Brad Miller was a trade. Oh, yeah. It was right. a sign-in yeah, trade. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, so my point is that how are you going to replace him? And it's not by going out and signing somebody because that's not going to happen. So what it's going to take is for you to trade assets to go get another Harrison Barnes. You already got a Harrison Barnes who's going to be good for the length of his contract, which is a de declining sure. scale. And if you take, say, Harrison Barnes against, say, Joe Harris or Davis Bertans, uh, who signed massive deals, who would you rather have? Who is a more complete player? Now, those players have an elite skill that they can shoot the three-pointer. But Harrison Barnes can play 35 minutes a night and defend, you know, one of the toughest players on your team. I mean, he does a lot of good things. And so, like, look, I'm not saying Harrison Barnes is the best thing ever. And I watched his his uh, year last year and was like, oh, man, this is going to be a money suck. This is going to be an albatross situation. But if you're getting what you're getting this year for the next two years out of Harrison Barnes, he makes your basketball team better. He doesn't make it worse. That's for sure. That's why the Boston Celtics would love to have him because they think he could be a missing piece. It could take them to the next level. So at some point you have to at least think of that and think of the way that he conducts himself. Think of the way that he works out and, and keeps his body and teaches the other players how to, how to be a professional, how to take care of your body on a daily basis. He doesn't miss games. Like there's a lot to Harrison Barnes that I think people just ignore um, but you know, I, again, I, it's my issue is that I've seen too many guys that you only dreamed were as good as Harrison Barnes and, sure. and they never work out that well. And you just shake your head and like, man, I, you know, the Dante greens of the world who you thought could be something and, and don't develop, or, you know, there's, there's just so many, uh, that, you know, I think when you have a guy and you've got him under contract, unless someone's giving you something of actual value which I, you know, what is the 18th, 20th pick in the draft Malachi Richardson, you know, it, it, it's, you know, guys like that is guys like Harry Giles, unfortunately, but you know, there's no guarantee that you're going to get anyone of value and anything that's going to be ready for two or three years. Tony, let's, uh, let's run over to, uh, to Sam Apick and Jason Jones. I want you to, to control this a little bit. Cause I know you, uh, you've read this a couple of times now. Talk, talk to us a little bit about this, uh, this gap year article that, that, that came out yesterday. Yeah, so um, we talked a lot about James's article earlier in the show, um, which was a good sort of companion piece to what uh, a lot of the stuff Amick and Jones reported in The Athletic um, on Friday morning. And there's some, a couple nuggets that we sort of already knew, but it was nice to get them confirmed. And then there was some new developments that I thought were worth talking about because it's some information that we just haven't really talked about a lot on the podcast and some stuff that I'm sure we all have uh, some opinions on. But um, one thing I did want to mention is Amick had obviously interviewed Walton at some point for this piece. And in that, and, and I mentioned this because last week on this, uh, or last episode, we had a question about Joe Dumars's involvement in the franchise. And I thought it was very notable and interesting that Walton said that he communicates with Monty McNair almost every day. And his involvement with Joe Dumars is very minimal. His engagements have been positive, but it does sound like from Walton's perspective and from what we've been reading over the last, you know, 24 hours that whatever friction or, or power struggle we might think there is with Joe Dumars, at least it's not reaching the coaching staff level. And, and maybe that has been overstated to this point 
it's all been speculation, but maybe even that speculation of, of how involved Joe Dumars might be and how him and Monty McNair might have different opinions on things. Um, it does seem like Monty McNair is driving the ship. James, is that your impression of, of the front office and how that is working right now too? Yeah. I mean, at this point, Monty is there every day. Um, I, I will tell people this too, that, uh, you know, Monty's a young guy who's 36, right? He's got a, a pregnant wife that's, I think she's nine months pregnant. Uh, so like any day. <laughs> so he, he's got that going on. So like his support staff and stuff. It, uh, but like you guys, if you read the thread in, in the mailbag, right? I told people a couple of things. Number one, we're all on the same Zoom call. So, so anyone who said, hey, you know, what do you think about this or that? Like you can go watch the Zoom call of everything we get. So every story you get, when you see like a positive, like four positive stories about Luke Walton, it's because the Luke Walton conversation was the most interesting thing that we got that day. Uh, so we all wrote on it because we're on the same Zoom, Zoom call. The reason I bring that up is that getting to like to reach Monty is very difficult. Like the way that COVID has happened and the way that everyone's scattered um, and, and, you know, they don't even work together in the same room very often. It makes it very difficult to like know who and what this guy is and what his plan is. I do. I have had some conversations. I do know what his basic plan is. Um, and, and so I, I do think he's running things right now, but I, I think that's what it has to be. Like, I don't, the Joe Dumar saying in the beginning was a mess. Uh, Joe Dumar should have either taken the job or, uh, or I, I don't know, like, but I'll say this too in like he's been with the kings over two years we've never got to speak to him at all as media they've never yeah. once given us joe dumars to speak to uh they don't let us anywhere near him so it's not like we have a good feel for what he's doing and how much influence he has you know i, I think that anil ronadive has as much influence over his dad as joe dumars um, just mm -hmm. because they're in this together and and i have no problem with that people are like oh i don't understand that well like if I on that team, me and my son would be sitting there hanging out, talking Kings basketball every single day. And we would be it's just reality. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's reality. So I don't get it. Um, but like, I think the front office, it has to, at some point, it has to be Monty's team. It has to, it's Monty who made that pick. It's Monty who, who drafted Halliburton. It's Monty who decided not to pick up the Bogdanovich deal. Maybe it wasn't, but at the end of the day, it's going to be on his, his headstone. At, you know, when the postmortem is written, whatever it is, it, there'll be a list of things that he did and things that he didn't. And whether he was the one who made those final decisions or not, it's going to be on his headstone. So he might as well take ownership of them. And so if that's, if that's what I know is going to happen, then I'm throwing my personality in there the whole time. And I, and it's going to be my team. I'm going to push and shove and it's going to be my team. So I'm hoping that Monty's doing that. And to, be honest with you i think so far what we've seen the moves that we've seen he he is running the ship um although there is this like nebulous thing hanging out there that could cause problems at any time jerry my sense after reading all of this stuff and sort of digesting the king season during the first half as we head into the all-star break the takeaway from all of this has been uh honestly for me mostly positive in that everything reported has been hey, this is Monty McNair's plan, and he's getting the room to, to do it. Uh, and at the end of the day, that's kind of what I'm looking for as a fan of the team. Jerry, has your impression, like, do you think the Kings are on the right track heading into the All-Star break? Did anything you read make you feel better about the direction 
or is this sort of another failed rebuild attempt run? Um, or do you, do you have a, a better feeling about the organization now than maybe you did at all-star breaks prior, just because it seems like there is a, a direction in place and it does seem like ownership is giving those people in charge room to, to do it. Well, that's a great question. I, I, I don't think there's any evidence one way or another, uh, to be honest with you. Yeah. I mean, uh, really Monte hasn't come out and, you know, until you do something, there really hasn't been very much done to be honest with you. Uh, I mean, you know, Halliburton, terrific, terrific pick. Well, he was there at 12 and he took him and, and he got, you got to give him credit for that. He was terrific. And, uh, Oh, by the way, there'll be a terrific pick 12, 13, 14 next year, too. Just wait and see. And by the way, uh, remind James that uh, uh, Barnes and Buddy Heald are both seventh picks, too. Uh, <laughs> I think Buddy was six. <laughs> oh, was he six? He okay. was. Uh, uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's the, you know, you just don't know enough. There's no reason to believe that Monty is not in charge. And, and there's no reason to believe he's not completely in charge and doesn't have his plan fully in force. There's also, uh, there's nothing to indicate that it's uh, totally working yet either because they are where you are. I mean, when you, at the end of the day, is this is a 14 to 22 team uh, that was basically healthy. Uh, the bench is worse than last year, uh, which has been pointed out. And it's the worst defensive team in the history of the NB of A. And uh, you, you can't, you cannot, uh, <laughs> sugarcoat that you just can't yeah i don't want to sit here and, and make it seem like i'm you know happy with the on-court product because that that has not been the case i don't think the games have been particularly enjoyable or compelling especially recently uh i just think i'm i'm satisfied enough because like mcnair mentioned and like has been reported so much this was sort of the expectation coming in uh, I'm happy they haven't sold out to try and win. I think we've seen teams try and chase the playoffs too hard and, and, and sort of hurt yourself in the future. I think the Kings have certainly done that in the past. So Monty McNair is keeping the cap sheet, you know, as least as clean as it was under Vlade. He's giving himself flexibility to, to do moves. But I do agree that it is, we are talking right now in an in a interesting moment in time because the trade deadline's on the 25th. The all-star break, break is right now these next two or three weeks is sort of make it or break it for Monty McNair with regards to movement this season, when we will see how much of his plan he can execute, how effectively he can execute it. I think it's, it sucks that the Dante DiVincenzo thing went the way that it did, because if you put that on his record, then you might really start feeling optimistic. You know, if he was able to take a restricted free agent like Bogdan Magdanovich and swing him for a player who, in my opinion, is playing almost better than Bogey ever has this season in, in Dante DiVincenzo. He's been great for Milwaukee. So that would have been a, a, another huge point of optimism if that had gone the way Monty McNair wanted it to. But, you know, you can't give him credit for, for, uh, for moves he didn't make. Yeah, you know, too, the, the other thing, I, I, I don't say, you know, that's all of a sudden here at the uh, All-Star break and trade deadline that Monty's got to do several things. Uh, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, uh, you know, the summer's the summer. I mean, he's got this time. Certainly, if there's good deals to make, you make them. But if there's not, he doesn't have to make anything. Uh, his his legacy will show up probably about October, November of next year. I mean, yeah. it's where, where, it's, where it's heading. And so I, I think we have to kind of keep that in mind. I mean, I know we always want certain things to happen, but I think one of the, you know, Really, hopefully, uh, it's a case where if he, he doesn't get a deal or, or things don't 
you know, match what he's looking for, uh, don't do anything. Uh, uh, you know, a no deals is not nearly as bad as a bad deal. And, uh, you know, and then so, uh, you, you know, time and patience, uh, it, it goes for developing players. It also goes for, for a first-year uh, general manager to, to try to get it right. You know, I, I talked about this a little bit in a preview and, and, and I've talked about this elsewhere as well, but I think that there's some, there's like an extra heightened level for, for fans this year in terms of being frustrated with this team, whether it was on the high or on the low. And some of that is the pandemic. Some of that is going into 15 years of ineptitude. But I think we're also kind of um, adjusting to Monty McNair's style. And maybe James and Jerry can talk about this because, Jerry, you were a GM. And, James, you've uh, been able to see Monty McNair behind the scenes. But when Vladi Divac was a general manager, you could have a player fart and, and Vladi would hold a press conference. And Vladi would explain it. And he would have – Vladi was media-friendly in the sense that he was telling the fans constantly about what was happening, what he was doing what he thought of, of, of this, his super team, just young, you know, all these things. He was willing to talk constantly about this team. Uh, and then you, you drop Monty McNair in the mix and he is dead silent. The radio doesn't even have static. It is just off. And we, we do have little pieces about, Oh, this is how Monty McNair thinks. And, but we do not see Monty McNair in front of a microphone in front of a camera saying anything at all. And now, Jerry, obviously, you're somebody who um, you, you have personality, you talk, you've talked things out from the few press conferences I can find on YouTube of, of Jerry Reynolds, you know, talking to the media. Uh, maybe you lean more Vladi than, than not. Mm. Um, but, but, uh, but on the other hand, like, James, maybe you can talk about this as well. Um, is this how Monty McNair is always going to be? Is he going to be uh, the Wizard of Oz, just the man behind the scenes? never uh, never bringing things up or is this a strategy that he has or is this maybe the pandemic when will he talk when will he when will he show himself uh, is this is this just his personality overall well i do think it is slightly his personality uh he's a very cerebral guy who's even when he does talk he doesn't say anything so so i know people who want him to come out and say something he will not make a mistake like Vlade did. And Vlade made a mistake almost. I mean, I love Vlade, but almost every time he talked, he gave you a sound bite. And it was almost like he right. planned on giving you a sound bite and thought that it would go over better than it did every time. And it never did. Um, Monty's just not going to give you that. He's not going to give you anything. So this kind of in a little bit of a way, it feels um, kind of like when the Maloofs completely screwed over and i'll say this too and jeff petrie uh paul westfall they they left paul westfall as the only person that would talk about the kings while they were trying to relocate the team and so the head coach of the basketball team is struggling because he's got a 58 million dollar salary cap you know uh, his team is is just you know seven guys on the on that the first year that i covered this team were out of the league within a year and the team was you know, in full relocation mode. Um, but they just left him out there to field all the questions. So I think a little bit, people get tired of hearing Luke Walton's voice because he's the guy that has to talk every pregame. He's the guy who has to talk every postgame. He's the guy that has to talk every practice. Uh, it would be nice for someone else to step up and say, look, my bad. I, I gave the guy like, you know, a seven man rotation 
and maybe he has an eighth player, but that's it. Like, sorry about that. Um, it, it would be nice to hear that from somebody, but I, I just don't think we're going to hear it. I think it is a little bit of his personality. And I'll also say this, like, look, he is going to be super aggressive, but he's not trying to get duped. Like he, like Jerry always talks about, like you have to have someone else in the NBA who's willing to give you somebody, you know, you, you don't just like take all your bad players and trade them for all their good players. Uh, but I also know that like, if you walk into a room and you, into a poker room and you don't know who the sucker is at the table, then it's you. And I don't think he's the sucker at a table. Uh, He's going to try to make this team better. Uh, he's willing to take on older players if that's going to make this team better. He understands from my conversations that you do not like the best way to build a basketball team is to not have a bunch of 21, 22 and 23 year olds. You're just going to get your butt kicked every single game. He knows these things. So it's just whether or not he has enough assets to go and swing for the fences or to surprise people and maybe pull off a trade that no one saw coming that makes his team better, that just moves pieces around. Um, I, I think he's going to be active. And uh, and so, you know, I, I don't know where your question was to where I took it, but sure. like, I, I certainly think that this isn't just, hey, we have to find, uh, we have to trade all of our veterans for a bunch of guys who are uh, in their first contract and and we're just going to build around Fox and, and really just give him no way to win. And that's because you don't have any players that are, you know, that are grown men. And I think that's, that's probably not what we're going to see here. Jerry, as a general manager, how did you handle the accountability aspect with the media and fans and whatnot? Well, you know, I, I think back to, you know, the kind of the comparisons, uh, certainly I agree as much. I love Roddy. Uh, he talked too much. He, he, he was too available to the media. I think Jeff Petrie, I always thought he had it right. Uh, you know, he and Rick Adelman, I mean, they weren't going to divulge anything to anybody. Uh, and uh, Jeff uh, always never never had a misspeak. I certainly uh, spoke too much. Uh, Pete DeLisandro <laughs> spoke too much. Uh, I think Monty McNair speaks too little, to be honest with you. I think at some point he's not president of the United States. He needs to, you know, basically have a, a periodically, as, as James pointed out, I mean, you really should step up there and uh, basically once a month just have a have a, a few things to say. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, so I, I think it's a mistake to not have any interactions until you absolutely are required to do so by some, some, something. I mean, uh, you, you, in my opinion, and I'm probably outspoken, but you owe the fans, you owe the fans uh, some, some idea, because if you don't, uh, then you get all the different variations of, Oh, he's this, he's that, he's this. Well, you, you know, he's thinking this, he's thinking, well, you don't know. How about maybe giving us some idea? Hey, and there's something else I'll add to this too, what sort of from my angle, what you don't understand is that if you have a coach that is a cool dude and talks to you all the time, it's not that you write nice stuff about them, but you develop relationships with people. So you, when they do pull you aside and say, Hey, this is why I did that. You get their point of view, Right. And so you're not so quick to judge. I, I remember sitting again with the late great Paul Westfall on the bench and the Utah Jazz, my first season, had just traded Durham Williams and Jerry Sloan's team was nothing but a bunch of second rounders. It was just absolutely god awful. And it would a really bad breakup. 
And I think Jerry Sloan quit the next day. Like he retired the next day or two days later, but I was sitting with Paul. I'm like, Hey, I just kind of feel bad for Jerry Sloan. Like this is, if this is how you're going out, look at the team he has. It's so many years of greatness. And he looked at me and he goes, James, have you looked at my roster? <laughs> He's like, do you feel bad for me? I'm like, Oh dude, I feel bad for you. So, so my point is this, my point is this, that, if you don't have a relationship with guys like me at all, I'm not, I'm going to be brutal. I'm going to be brutal the whole time because look, I, you haven't taken any opportunity to explain to me what you're doing. Sure. And if I, if I don't know, and I can't disseminate at least what your plan is to people, uh, not what my opinion is of your plan, but what your plan is to people, then there's going to be a problem. There's going to be a reckoning moment where it's like, Oh man, like you messed up and I don't know anything. I don't hardly know you at all. And I'm, I'm going to go, you know, bring out the big guns, you know, like the Bogdanovich, the night that they decided not to match Bogdanovich. That was one of the most, like I, my takedown was hardcore. I was frustrated. Like uh, covering bad basketball isn't fun. You know, you, you, I love my job for sure, but watching writing 50 losing game recaps every year it takes its toll on you and when you see a player that can help you walk out the door you're like you know i maybe i you just get hopeful for a for a 500 season but at the same time like you just can't keep taking steps back so uh so again i my point was that if you don't have that relationship then you better be willing to, uh, you better know what's coming. Um, you know, it, it just, it is what it is. It's human nature. If you're not connected to someone at all, you're a little more brutal. I saw that with, uh, you know, Bill Russell, Isaac, when I was coaching and Bill was a GM and he had no relationship with the media at all. Just, uh, they didn't like him. He didn't like them. And, and, you know, and, and basically it's one of those things to where when things, uh, when they got a chance, uh, you know, when the first chance they got, you know, I mean, they, they went after him, you know, I mean, and he gave them plenty of ammunition, you know, and it's like, so I think there's a middle ground in there somewhere. I, I always thought, I thought Jeff Petrie probably did as well as you could do until the end. And then I think he probably covered for the Blues way too much, but that was just my thought. Jerry and even Rick, you could say the same thing about Rick people. He wasn't good with the media. No, no. A lot of people. A lot of people didn't like him at all. The second he started, his team got old and started running out of gas. The, the temperament in the newspaper became like, holy cow. Like they're roasting the best coach you've ever had. A guy who should be in the Hall of Fame. A guy who had the greatest next man up mentality rotation I've ever seen in the NBA. As soon as things went bad, it was like the pitchforks and, and torches were out from the media. And that's because of the relationship that he had done. And I'm not saying you have to be great with the media all the time and they have to be your friends. Certainly, I don't consider any of these guys friends outside of maybe Westfall. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and that was because we were in a different situation. Um, it was my first year where uh, we went into the lockout. I spent time with him during lockout. Um, but even that was just like absorbing basketball knowledge. He knew how to work a room. You got to know how to work a room. And uh, as of right now, you know, that's going to be an issue, I think. I tell you, though, with Paul, and, and, and you're right. I mean, he knew how to work a room, but he was just a great guy. I mean, really. He I was. mean, that, that's yeah. who he was. I, I tell you right now. I mean, he, I've known him 
or you know, almost his playing days. And I mean, he he just that's who he was in every stop, every situation. So, but uh, you know, but you're right about Rick, and I, I'm a good friend. I still one of the few people that have a relationship with him, and and I've told him, I said, sometimes Rick, you're just a damn dick. You know, I mean, you can. Uh, <laughs> You know, you don't have, you're a great, great coach. And, uh, you know, and, and, but, you know, he was true to himself though. I mean, look, uh, his, his idea was, Hey, I'm going to coach my team and go home. And that's what they pay me for. And and now that I said, well, that's not all they pay you for, but that's the main thing. And, you know, and as long as you win, that'll be enough. But, uh, but when it starts sliding just a little bit, then it's not enough. Just pulling this back to the fans of Monty McNair a little bit. I, I do think that the, some of the reason there's been a little extra, uh, I don't want to say necessarily hostility, but there's been a lot more friction between different sets of fans this year. It has been because Monty McNair has been so quiet and, and there's a, a, a massive amount of whiplash from last season when it was Vladi Divac who talked way too much to everybody to, to just go and drop in a, a real hard dead silent Monty on there. I think there is some people, and I think James is right that the media eventually, if it isn't lightened up a little bit, eventually the media gets frustrated and they start writing a little bit harder pieces on if, say, Monty McNair isn't successful in some of these things, the media starts writing, you know, starts writing a little bit harsher because they don't have that relationship. Fans continue to get frustrated. It makes it a whole lot harder to fan than it than it is you know yeah. it's not just the media that fans as well will will bite back a lot harder if they don't have information on what's going on yeah he can make it easier on himself that's all i'd say i, I like yeah. what he's doing i yes. like the fact that he but but i mean come on there you you know there is you, part of your job uh is communicating with the people who's in effect paying for your salary and especially at this time when uh, you're just bleeding money all over the place, you at some point you're going to need some of those people back in the building paying a lot of money. So uh, I, that'd be my he, if he'd ever asked my opinion, I'd say, boy, I'd, I'd sure set up a time, fifteen minutes uh, once a week, and uh, just and and then you know you can control it, but just let them know you're on the job and you're you know kind of get some idea of what you're thinking. You don't have to say anything; just talk. That and Jerry went from once a month to once a week. Again, Jerry's the overtalker. He's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, like, look, I, I don't know at what point that, that things will change. Um, but at this point, I think you always have to give somebody an opportunity to do their job and to see their, their view. Like I can zoom back and see what the plan is. Like it is what it is. So how harsh do you be? Can you be on uh, on a GM who you understand his plan is not this year, it's it's next year, it's this coming summer, it's this trade deadline where he has $30 million in expiring contracts. Like, show me what you can do. Like, we're still waiting for that moment where, yeah. like, you know, let me see what you can do. And if you can't do anything and we keep wondering when he's going to make a move and we get past this next offseason and he still hasn't made a move, then it's like, okay, okay. Just, you know, being paralyzed is not, is not a move. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to actually show us that there's something. Uh, and outside of, you know, figuring out some way to get uh, Tyrese Halliburton to tumble to 12, which, you know, they did do. They, mm-hmm. they did have a hand in it. But, um, you know, again, I would be much more, uh, I would give him more props for Hall- Halliburton if he moved up to number six and got him. Even if that cost him a bunch, I still think that would be like, 
as opposed to what Jerry said, you pick the guy who fell to you. Tony, let's, uh, I didn't mean to pull it away for that long, but so is there anything else you wanted to mention on that uh, athletic article? There's one other uh, kind of point I wanted to hit that both James and, and the athletic guys talked about. And I wanted to drill down on what, uh, what the lesson should be here. And I'm going to talk about what I mean by that right now. Um, so there is this notion that the Kings keep hiring and firing head coaches, right? You know, Keith Smart gets a year and a half. Paul Westfall gets two and a half years. Dave Yeager gets two and a half years. George Carl gets one and a half years. Ty Corbin gets three games. <laughs> you know, there's this coaching <laughs> churn. And, and one side of it, you know, that the lesson there that Vivek can learn is, uh, hey, maybe show some consistency here. Maybe give a coach some room to breathe. Um, but the other side of that, and, I, and I've seen that, and we've talked about it with the financial ramifications of letting go another head coach, the minority ownership. They don't want to, you know, pay another coach not to coach. I understand all of that. Um, so I guess I'll start with Jerry. Do you think that for the sake of consistency, should the Kings keep a head coach like Luke Walton around or where I come from after reading sort of this, this idea of, of keeping the head coach and giving him a chance to do his job. Uh, my side of the coin might be, Hey, I think the lesson might actually not be let the coach have as much time as he needs. However you want to phrase that. And the lesson might be, Hey, let's improve our hiring practices and make sure we get the right guy so we don't have this coaching churn. Because if I look back at some of the coaching hirings the Kings have had, it's been a lot of quick hirings, a lot of uh, emotional hirings. Look back at the George Carl thing where they, they couldn't even give Ty Corbin a couple of weeks. They had to rush into George Carl just because he was on ESPN campaigning for the job. You know, I look at some of the, the hiring practices and think that Vivek should uh, maybe address it that way instead of just blanket giving guys more time. So Jerry, what do you think the, the lesson should be and the path forward for whoever coaches this team next, whether you think it should be Luke Walton with a longer leash or, or a different hiring practice moving forward? Um, but what can the Kings look at from their history of this coaching churn throughout the decade of losing? And what do you think is the best path forward in either keeping Luke Walton or hiring a new coach in a, in a different, different circumstances? Well, I, I think in a nutshell, it, to me, for it to, to work, uh, whether it has very little to do with Luke, in my opinion, it has to do with the, uh, Monty McNair. In other words, he needs to make the decision you know, at some point, whether it's the off season or whatever, is Luke the, the guy that I can go forward with and this franchise can go forward with for a number of years and, and as we get better and better? Or if he's not, then he needs to make the decision to get the coach that can do that. And then, uh, and then hopefully, uh, go, you know, get the right guy, which is always difficult. And then you hope that, uh, you have the patience to give them a chance to succeed. I mean, that's the what's happened is you just got a mismatch of well, a coach is hired, then a general manager is hired, then a GM is hired, then a coach is hired, and who hires them? Who has actually hired them? And who has been well at some point? Uh, get get it back to square one. Uh, GM responsible for coaching hires. Coaching hires responsible to the GM, and and start there. And just, you know, and now, and I'm okay if, if at some point, I mean, money, if he decides Luke's his guy, which he hasn't, you know, it's really not yet. Uh, but if he decides that, then that's on him too. You know, that then that becomes his hire, even if it, it hasn't been. 
So that's all I'd say. Just uh, at some point, it needs to get to that point to where you do have the person running the franchise, you know, and I, I saw it run very well with uh, Jeff Petrie, uh, basically on that basis for a number of years. And, uh, and that's that, that about the only way it can work. I would make two points in this conversation. Um, number one, the two guys that I believe the VEC hired have actually worked out really, really well. Uh, but both of them failed for different reasons. Um, so Michael Malone was clearly Vivek's hire. Uh, he hired him before he hired Pete D'Alessandro. Um, and then you had a power grab and a power struggle and people, you know, the infighting guys whispering in the King's ear. Um, and so that fell apart. But if he would have just stuck with Michael Malone, it would have been very successful. The second guy that I believe Vivek did hire um, was not George Carl, was not Ty Corbin. It was very specifically Dave Yeager. Uh, Vladi had held like 47 interviews. Like he had interviewed six guys three times. Like we were watching like the slowest, most methodical coaching search of all time. And then a phone call was made. Dave Yeager might be available uh, on a Friday. They had him in the building on Saturday. And by Sunday morning, he was signed to a contract. Again, I believe that that was a Vivek Ranadive hire. So here is the problem. Those two guys are probably your best coaches that this team has had. And they were his hires. So he now has an idea that he is good at hiring coaches, right? If you are two for two and then you take uh, like Luke Walton, Luke Walton is clearly Vlade Divac's hire. But see, that's the other dynamic that's always in play here. If you don't have the ownership, the front office and the coach all blended together, then you end up with a situation with, which is what happened with Jaeger. Jaeger took the job and that first team, it was, uh, you just go down the list, right? It's, it's um, DeMarcus Cousins, uh, Matt Barnes, Omri Caspi, uh, Rudy Gay, uh, yeah, Rondo, Bellinelli, uh, you know, Where's like all of these players, you have this, this team, right? That's solid, that's a veteran team. Well, they gutted that team the next summer and started over. So all of those guys are gone. And so he goes from having, you know, three dudes who are six foot nine that can play small forward to having like his tallest player was, was Bogdan Bogdanovich at the wing uh, in the second season. And so then the third year, he finally starts to turn it on. But now once again, uh, you're doing something that's crazy. You know, it, it's totally bizarre. He gets into a brawl with Brandon Williams and, and you, you dump him. Right. But then it's almost like they they're doing the same exact thing with Walton. Uh, first of all, he doesn't have this, the same GM anymore. His GM is now gone, but last year's roster is so much better than this year's roster. And that's because you switch your GM and he's got a different idea in mind. And so there, you just can't keep doing this where you don't have a perfect marriage between the basketball side, the ownership side, and the coaching side. If you keep switching and staggering, you're, you're going to lose, and you're always going to have a different idea. Like everyone's idea of what their job is is different. Right now, Luke Walton played back-to-back -back games with basically a seven-man rotation. I think he played Daquan Jeffries a total of seven minutes. I mean, uh, 14 minutes over two games, right? Well, if Luke Walton doesn't 
isn't fearing for his job, do you think he's running that rotation? You know, if Dave Yeager wasn't fearing for his job, do you think that he's running that crazy frenetic style where no one knows how to play basketball, but they're just sprinting? No, everything that happens is reactionary because no one is on the same page. And so now you have a coach coaching for his life all the time. You have a GM who's got some long-term plan or short-term plan. And then the next guy has a long-term plan that's different than the other guy's long-term plan. And then you have an owner who gets impatient because the team loses and doesn't know why. And so until you get all of those things on one streamlined path, I think you're going to have problems like this. And I, I think that is 14 years in Kings basketball in a nutshell. Yeah. I think that dynamic James that you explained is, uh, and the reason why I asked the question is I think that that is the core of why there are a lot of fans who do or did want Luke Walton fired because they do view this situation as inevitably going sour and would rather start the next generation. Let's start it now. You know, there's that impatience to our, we, we understand what's happened. We don't want to see it happen again. So let's, let's quit playing around and pretend like this might work, even though of course we don't know that it won't for sure. But I think that's where that, that fan take is coming from just that feeling of inevitability that this will break down uh, we've seen it happen a million times before and you know, let's stop pretending and let's get it started. Now, that being said, I do agree with what we've talked about already in that I don't think a change mid season does anything for anybody. Gentry isn't going to turn this team into a playoff team out of nowhere. Uh, getting rid of Luke Walton, like, clearly he has player support. I don't think that's going to change any locker room dynamics. So, uh, but that's, I think that is the core of where, the, the fire Luke Walton sort of campaign is, is that it does sort of seem like we are on an inevitable path. So let's just get there now. Yeah. Well, but here's the problem. Like, again, not to like, I don't know if Luke Walton's a good coach or not. I've been honest about that the whole time. I, I don't know if he's a good coach or not. I can just tell you this. Uh, he is the guy who realistically discovered Rashawn Holmes as a starting NBA center. Rashawn Holmes bounced around the league. He'd done good stuff, but always in limited minutes. Uh, he's also the guy that has been overseeing the team while De'Aaron Fox has taken two tremendous leaps in his production. He's a guy that Harrison Barnes is having the best season of his career under. Uh, he's a guy that was willing to go against his front office and dump Dwayne Dedman and put Holmes in the starting lineup. He's a guy that was willing to bench Buddy Heald, who had just signed an $86 million extension for Bogdan Bogdanovich. So like some of the things that Luke has done I think are really good. He's also the guy that is slowly trying to build Marvin Bagley while trying to win games, which is a very difficult dynamic. Um, but the other thing he's done, he's the same coach that is playing your rookie, rookie 20 year old, 12 minutes in every fourth quarter that he can. So like, what are, what do you want? You want your young players to get better. You want them to discover some free agents. You want them to make tough moves. Okay. He's done all of those things. Now he needs more help. You know, Corey Joseph is having what most people think is just a completely miserable season. It's actually the same season Corey Joseph always has, except for Corey Joseph usually has three other guys that can play basketball with him in the second unit. And when you don't have a bona fide score next to Corey Joseph off the bench, he's going to look bad. He's not a natural scorer. He's a guy who doesn't make mistakes, who does solid things on the defensive end, uh, you know, who does ba plays basketball the right way. But what I'm mm. saying is like the dynamics have to all be on the same page here and they just aren't. 
Uh, and that's, you know, again, it's, it's hard to watch and I get why fans are pissed, but you can't discredit the things that Luke Walton has done and just act like they didn't happen because you, you want him fired. You can't discredit the fact that his 41 seven win percentage is the second best in Kings history. I mean, in Sacramento Kings history, you just can't throw it out the window and say, Oh, he's horrible. He's trash. I think a lot of it is that Luke Walton is still a Laker. Uh, Vlade Divac started with the Lakers, came to the Kings, went back to the Lakers. He didn't really understand how much Kings fans hate Lakers. <laughs> and I think part of the issue with Luke is they, everyone just still sees him as a Lakers coach. Now, again, the Kings aren't successful. They, they want to get frustrated and angry, but they also want to discredit all of the things that Luke is up against in his rook in his first year. Uh, and, and just say, oh, well, Dave Yeager had you here. You should have gone to here. Well, but Dave Yeager didn't have the same circumstances. And, and so, again, I just think it's way more complex than just fire a guy or, or not. It, it's, there's so many little nuances to this discussion that have to be looked at. Um, and that's why I try to be as fair as possible when I write these things. And some people hate it. But at the same time, it's like that's my job is to show the different angles and be fair. You know, James, that's an interesting point that you brought up about uh, about Luke as a Laker, and I, I'm I'm not sure if I can speak for everybody, but I, I would have had Kobe Bryant as a head coach if I if you could promise me a championship in Sacramento, I would not have given a crap if he was if it was Phil Jackson, if it was Kobe Bryant, if it was Robert Ory hitting the same shot on Vladi Divac every or on Chris Webber's extended hand. You could show that play every single day if the Kings would win a championship from it. The first five game losing streak, every single Kings fan would want him fired. I guarantee it. That's the way they are. And I get it. It's a passionate fan base and that's what you want. That's, that's the beauty of Sacramento Kings fans is that they're so passionate, but I, I, I understand what you're saying. I just don't, I don't know that it's the case. I, I, I just, I, I think it's more, I think a lot of the frustration with Luke is, and not to get into his personal stuff, because that's, that's a separate issue altogether. Vladi brought him in without a single other interview. Vladi, you know, the second he was dropped, picked him up and that was it. And that was the time where the Kings fans had really called for another process in which you, you fire Dave Yeager. Okay. Now make the right choice here. You know, there, there seemed to be a one coach after another, after another, at first it was, um, after Keith Smart was fired and Mike Malone got hired, it was okay. Keith Smart was the, he was kind of the, uh, the Mark Jackson to Steve Kerr. Mike Malone is the Steve Kerr. Well, then Mike Malone gets fired and everyone goes, okay, well, he was really the Mark Jackson. And, and, and the next guy up, uh, Ty Cor, or not Ty Corbin, but George Carl, really George Carl is going to be the Steve Kerr. And Mike Malone was really the, well, then George Carl gets fired and Dave Yeager gets brought on and it's, it's the same process over and over. Everyone ends up being Mark Jackson and there is no Steve Kerr in that bunch. I'll tell you this. Like I, I get what you're saying, but people think that Vlade rushed into Luke Walton. All of us in the building, we started hearing Luke Walton's name at the all-star break. Like, so I, I get it, but at the same time, Vlade had just done 50 million interviews just two years before mm -hmm. the same retreads were going to be there. He was going to interview the same group of dudes. That's the league is what it is. Everyone gets a second shot. Everyone gets a third shot. It's a, it's a bunch of guys who just perpetually come back. I mean, Jerry, how many times did you coach the Kings? Not that I consider you a retread, but you're the guy who just kept stepping in. But in how many situations does a head coach come back and coach the same team three times? 
it, it's, you know, it's not that, that usual, but my point is that people who think that it was just a rushed into decision, like Luke was a highly regarded young coach when he was coaching, when he uh, did his stuff with the warriors, just because he had a bad experience, people had seen the growth in the Lakers uh, and then LeBron got there. And again, the whole dynamic changes when you throw in someone like that, the whole, all the expectations change, but you put LeBron on a team with a bunch of bad players. So I, again, I think my point is that this was in the works well before, like whether, I don't think there, I don't know if there was tampering. I don't think there was tampering, but like Luke Walton was going out of the Lakers and they had already, the wheels were in motion. It's not some decision that someone rolled over and said, Oh, we're hiring Luke Walton tomorrow. And as a Kings fan, that frustrates me <laughs> to hear that at the all-star break, Vladi had figured out, Oh, this is going to be Luke Walton. And that he was going to either in every single year, another coach will show himself, whether it's in the G league, like a Nick nurse or uh, the coach of the Indiana Pacers right now, you've got guys that are coming from the G league. You've got college coaches that show up every single year as a guy that could be the next guy. And if he was only going to, interview the next one or two or three retreads so he went oh might as well go grab luke like that would also ultimately be frustrating and i think that was the point where people went vladi this is the time to take your time and instead he knew his guy that's who it was the fact that he was the head coach of the lakers doesn't mean anything the fact that that uh, that he was a former laker himself even at the time it was kind of like oh okay like all right so luke walton's the guy i guess and, and uh, I, I, I won't talk about anything in his personal life, but that is also ultimately very frustrating. And, and so I understand that. Uh, like, I, yeah. 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 Just to fold into then on top of this, you have two seasons and yes, you're absolutely correct that there's some undue credit there because of the pandemic and, and, and the fact that, but like at the end of the day, he also has a difficult time even last season with his rotations at times. And then this season, whoever we can blame it on the Kings are in the news. And when they're in the news on ESPN, it is because they have the worst defense in NBA history. And, and that, that is a, a short bench. That is uh, guys that are injured and, and, and playing injured or having a young star in De'Aaron Fox and having a younger star in Tyrese Halliburton. But at the end of the day, th there's some, some terrible teams on that list of all time worst defenses and the Kings still couldn't be, third worst defense of all time <laughs> you know they you know they couldn't at least soften that blow a little bit they are and so I think that that Luke Walton frustration is much more in the numbers and in the overall view than just or not not just I don't want to say you accused it of just being him being a Laker but I think the Lakers thing is tampered way down the list I think no that's very possible but I'll also tell you like they switch defensive schemes um you got a bunch of players that just can't figure it out and, and I've watched this time and time again, every single training camp, you go to training camp, they put in all this stuff. Uh, after the first preseason game, the head coach comes out and says, I got to dumb down the playbook. I got to pull it back because I don't have a team that's ready to do what I need them to do. And I think part of it is that, right? Tony, was there anything else from that, uh, that athletic article that you wanted to bring up? Uh, I have one other thing that I'm going to say for the Patreon question. Are you ready to get to it? Cause it kind of ties into, to that. Um, <laughs> Well, let's do that right now, then. We're going to get into our single Patreon question here. And uh, Tony, why don't you uh, take that away? All right. So uh, every week on the show, uh, on the main show here, we take one question from our patrons. And then uh, once a month, we do a big Q&A with all the questions we don't use um, and drop that on Patreon for our patrons once a month. But the question for the main show today 
comes from uh, Twitter, actually, Jerry. I apologize. We're, we're incorporating Twitter into the show. I know how much you enjoy um, that social media platform. <laughs> uh, so this question comes from at uh, N.E. Tari. And it's uh, kind of in line with the, the Amic and Jones article, but, uh, and I'll interested in James's take on this afterwards too, but uh, Jerry, what does, uh, what does Jerry make of the story that Bielitsa 10 games into the season suddenly refused to accept a bench role for the benefit of Marvin Bagley. And then, you know, we finally got some light on that bizarre situation. I don't know if that's exactly how it went down the way that Twitter question came in, but that has sort of been the, uh, the reported issue here is that, Bielitsa didn't understand why he was suddenly not playing uh, and Marvin Bagley was. So, uh, so Jerry, what do you think of uh, the Bielitsa situation now that we have a little bit more information on how it, how it went down? Well, I, I, I hope it's not true. You know, I mean, to me, that yeah. is the most, one of the most unprofessional approaches uh, I've ever heard of. Uh, uh, Nimmage is a really good player and certainly would understand why he'd be unhappy about losing a starting position or whatever. Uh, but uh, he has, and, and really, if that's the case, then Luke is uh, open for some criticism here as well. Uh, uh, basically, he's hired to play basketball. He signed a contract to that effect. And uh, whether uh, he gets to start or come off the bench, that's not his decision. And if he's not willing to be a player uh, when called upon to perform, uh, in my opinion, he should be uh, uh, kicked off the team. You know, fined. And I mean, you you are obligated. I mean, you've signed your you've given your word as a professional basketball player that you're going to play every game you can play if healthy. So I just hope that's not true. I, I, I just I just can't imagine anything uh, more unprofessional than that. And 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 really, and I and and if Luke allowed that, then he's he's wrong too. There's, there's no rights here. Uh, you needed, uh, he's too good a player with a terrible bench not to play, not to get minutes from. And don't complain about your bench if one of your best players uh, is not playing because his feelings are hurt. Ridiculous. I hope that sums it up. Ridiculous. James, was that your impression of the of the situation, kind of how it was reported in that athletic article where Bielitsa sort of took, basically took himself out uh, because he wasn't either getting the role, the minutes, or what, or, or what, in some sort of way, just kind of falling to the side because it was Marvin Bagley's turn to, to, to play? Yeah, I mean, like, look, I, Bielitsa knew that he was the backup uh, power forward last season, but Bagley broke his thumb in the first game of the season, then he played 13 games. So, um I'm not sure that I that I fully agree that that's the way that the whole thing played out. I think that there's definitely we'll have to like sort of root this out more. I I reached out multiple times during the time where he was out and was like, look, is he hurt? Is it a personal issue? At first, it was like, I don't know why Luke said that, that it was a personal issue because he's just out of the rotation. Um, and, and being out of the rotation made sense at some point, because if you're going to play Rashawn Holmes and Whiteside at, at the center position, and then you're going to play Bagley and Harrison Barnes as you two fours, then it is tough to fit in a fifth guy. I get that. So I'm not going to like, you know, I, I understand the dynamic there. Um, but everything that I have been told again and again and again, is that it was a personal issue with Bielitsa. Um, I've Nemanja is a very good dude. Uh, 
but I, I wouldn't be surprised if he was frustrated and pissed. I just don't know that he would say, I'm not going to play. If the personal issue that he had was that he's out of the rotation, then I think that's a little bit disingenuous from the Kings. Like Glenn Robinson had a personal issue. Is he upset that he's not playing major minutes? Yeah, but he had a personal issue that took him away from the team. Just like Jabari Parker had a personal issue that took him away from the team. Um, and just like last season, uh, Trevor Ariza had personal issues. So uh, I would side with Jerry. If he said, if that is actually true and that is actually the way it played out, man, that guy's making $7.2 million this year. He needs to be ready to play and he needs to play if Luke says, I need you for two minutes or I need you for 35. So he, he's got to be ready. And I thought it was weird when the Kings picked up that $7.2 million contract. Uh, and, and at this point, I think it's even stranger unless he, they only did it to keep him as an asset and they intend to deal him in the next week or two. So I, I think the whole situation is weird. But again, I've known Nemanja long enough to know that some of that seems just a little strange. You know, he's a gamer. He's a guy who shows up every day, who works, who has always been a reliable player and is still on a team that has a low basketball IQ. He's one of your highest basketball IQ players. Let's go now to uh, to uh, the final segment of the show that we like to do every week. Uh, Jerry with the uh, Jerry Reynolds wrap up. Jerry, what do you have for us today? Well, the only thing uh, I think of is All-Star Weekend. So uh, I have some thoughts on the All-Star game. And I'll reiterate what I've said in the past, and I totally agree with uh, <laughs> Michael Wilbon of the Pardon Interruption. Uh, the The current format is is ridiculous. It it is a, it's 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 AAU pickup game. It, it's absolutely asinine uh, on the format they have. And of course, you probably shouldn't even be playing it. So, so but his suggestion was, and I hundred thousand percent agree. Make the all-star game a USA best NBA players versus the best NBA international players. And I guarantee you what you'd have is certainly a good chance for the international team to win, number one. But you would have competition to win from the start. You would go back to the way the all-star game was back in the 70s, 80s, maybe even early 90s when they actually tried hard for the game because the money was still somewhat important and there was some competition involved. So you wouldn't need all the jibber jabber special rules at the end to, to make it competitive. So I know, you, you know, if you, the fans that like this current format, well, that's on you because it's not really basketball and it's not all. And I, I say internationals, you bet you, you put uh, Rudy Gobert and Jokic and, and Luka Doncic and, and, and uh, Vucevic and some of these guys, you think they couldn't beat the USA team? Embiid? Huh? Come on. Uh, ben Simmons? Yeah. Let's, let's do that. You want an all-star game? Let's have one. That's a way to do it. You've convinced me, Jerry. That sounds like a good idea. I agree with Tony on that one. And Jerry, I want to know your opinion on um, having an all-star game uh, dunk contest with no fans in the arena. How fun would it be to watch two two guys in an arena dunking with no one else cheering for them but crowd noise? Well, for me, it'd be the same. But uh, I, I, I mean, uh, to me, at least the three-point shot is a skill. Uh, Duncan, uh, after you take seven steps without dribbling, uh, that's not a basketball skill any longer. You know, I mean, uh, Duncan in a game over a crowd, that's a skill. I get that. But uh, anyway, uh, so I'm, I'm not a fan of the dunk contest and 
And uh, but as you pointed out, uh, it's tolerable with fans in there because some fans really like it and excited with it, some of the gimmickry. So I'm okay that way. But with no fans in there, you know, come on. Well, it's kind of like the regular games now with all the goofy crowd noise all the time when you know there's no crowd there. <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, for our uh, our three all stars here today, and Tony Zip Terrace, Jay Reynolds, and James Ham, uh, we'd like to thank James Ham for coming on and uh, and uh, tell everyone to uh, like, rate, and subscribe us wherever you find this podcast. And uh, we'll see you guys after the all star break, and hopefully the next time we come on, we'll be able to share uh, some positive news about the Kings and the direction that they're going, either by by trade or or uh, or otherwise. So for everyone here at uh, the Quintero, uh, we'd like to thank you for listening. Thank you.